A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. This is an RNZ podcast. They say it takes a village to raise a child. I'm Lynn Freeman, and here we draw on my conversations with experts on Nine to Noon to help you navigate family life. What are the most common speech sound errors in young children? At what age should children be speaking clearly and pronouncing words correctly? Wellington speech and language therapist Christian Wright is with me in the Wellington studio with some tips for parents. Kia ora, good morning. Good morning, Lynn. How are you? I'm well, thank you very much. I'm so aware as I was reading out that introduction of trying to speak really well. Is this what <laughs> no. happens to you all the time? Yeah, I so do get this all the time. Going to a dentist on my teeth yeah. clean? Yes, that, sorry about that. Oh, no, you, <laughs> your speech is normal, Lynn. <laughs> oh, goodness. Um, right, well, let's have a look at the these errors, if you like, that we're talking about. And I guess we should establish too, because I was thinking about this, people want benchmarks with the young people you know is my child at two three mm. four five mm. doing what they should be doing but I know in my family particularly the boys and the two generations down have been very slow speakers late speakers so do mm. people have to be, what are we talking about here we have to be careful that every child is unique um, yes to some extent that's right there's always variability within norms so um there are always recommendations around when a child should say their first word or when certain speech sounds might be expected to come in, but there's always some variance within that. Um, I just didn't want people to panic. Yeah, know? no, totally, <laughs> absolutely. Um, I think a starting point, as you say, you're quite right, looking at the speech norms. So just recently, actually, in November last year, um, the American Journal of Speech Language Pathology, they released... Um, two Australian researchers that are quite well known have updated, in a sense, the speech norms. And it's really great. It's it's a very easy journal article to read, but even more, um, I can, I'll send a, a link later on for parents if they want to go and read a really well-written article by a very parent-friendly writer about this. But essentially what they did is they looked across 27 languages and they were looking at when do across these languages, and this includes things like German, Mandarin, Arabic, Danish, Slovenian, um, a very interesting language, Orsa, um, which is an African language. So um, all these different languages. And they were looking for commonalities amongst the consonants and when these would come in. And what they found is that basically by five years old, in, in all these different studies that they'd done, five-year-olds produced consonants 93% correct. So it's a very high success rate by the time you're five. And um, when we take that and put that alongside our knowledge that four-year-olds, by the time you're four, you're usually 95% intelligible to strangers. And as I've said in previous um, um, sessions, that intelligibility is not about accuracy. It's about how easy you are to understand. You can make an error but still be easy to understand. But there are some errors that are so destructive that they subtract from intelligibility. So if by five you should have at least 93% or more of your consonants correct, and if by four you're 95% intelligible, it's just giving us the picture that by five you're clear and easy to understand. And I think that's a starting point for parents because often... All of us um, well-meaning parents think, I'll just give it a bit longer, I'll just give it a bit longer, when it's something that needs attention now um, because the child isn't that intelligible. Or 
not that you're going to add up all the consonants and work out the percentage, but there's enough there that you have concern. And so for parents who are listening, um, be be reassured in the first instance that between two and five, there are patterns of error in the speech of children. That like. is no, that is normal, and they are well-researched and well-recognised. Could you give some examples? Um, so, for example, when they say cat, they say tat. So they replace the back sound, the k, with a t. Um, or a spider is a pider. Um, putting aside multisyllabic words, which every child has trouble with. There's lots of hostipals out there, you know, and hippopotamuses and all those kinds of things. But the point being that there are patterns of error, but generally speaking, by the, time, by the time a child is four and a half, the overwhelming majority of those patterns have gone, which is why their intelligibility is good and also their consonant accuracy has improved so much. So there are, however, which is what we're talking about today, a small pool um, of sounds that can be troublesome and can persist. And I've based this on my clinical experience, some of it on the research, but some on my clinical experience. If parents take a look at um, the link that I will post later, they'll see, it's quite neatly done, um, the different stages between two and three, four, and then going up to five, all the way up to six years, you'll see the sounds that you should be expecting to see coming in as the um, child progresses through those first five years. But um, equally, there are some sounds that are, um, as I said, just troublesome. And the first one we're going to talk about is the back sounds, the Ks. K's and G's. So often when children come to see me and they're five years old, always when they walk in the door, you have a chat, um, you get them nice and comfortable, have a play. And there are basically four or five sounds that I'm immediately listening for because they are the most common. Um, so this is one of them, the K sound. Um, that's a sound that should have fixed itself by the time a child's three and a half. So it is persisting quite a long time here into the age of five. So what they're often doing, as we talked about before, they're taking back sounds, Ks and Gs, and they're moving them to the front of their mouth and producing them as Ts and Ds. Um, when we did a study of just over a 1,000 New Zealand children some years back, I think it was 2005, um, what we found, um, we looked at the percentages, and we found that by the time they're five, this issue affects about 5% of um, school-age children. Um, so we'll go through some percentages as we go through today. So the K's going, G's going to T's and D's. That's the first one. Um, what I'll do today is just quickly cover the five sounds and then we'll go into the, the important bit and what you should do to fix it. Um, the second one is consonant blends. So like S blends, like sp and sm, st, sn, those kinds of sounds. L blends, bl, um, cl, fl, and then R blends. So br, cr, tr. Um, those are also susceptible to not developing very well in those preschool years, so you can have a bunch of five-year-olds who don't do so well on those. Um, the long sounds, S and F, so there are other sounds, but these are the two I'm picking, um, which are quite common. They are often made to be short, so S's turn into T's or D's, F's turn into P's or B's. Could you give me an example? Um, so a sock is um, a dock, um, a fish is a bish, so we see some of those. Um, sorry, I've just realised to go back to those blends. Often they'll delete part of the blend. So um, the spider is a pider that will persist. Sometimes in the L blends they'll replace the L with a W, so a plane is a plane. Or sometimes they just delete the L. It's a pain. 
But what you're listening for is you're hearing an error, and as a parent, what I encourage parents to do, just write down the words. So what was the word they were trying to say, and how did they say it? What changed? Why is it quirky? And then try and look specifically at what it is. And then you can go to a chart, like I will um, provide the link later, to work out, well, when should that have come in, and should I be concerned? Um then moving on, we've got our L's and R's. These are tongue tip movement sounds, so the idea is your tongue tip is lifting up to either the gum ridge for the L or halfway, roughly halfway back in your mouth for R. And often children simplify this to a lip or a jaw movement. So why that is, it's a fine gross motor distinction, so gross motor being big movement. Your jaw and your lips are bigger, easier movements than focusing on your tongue, which is a muscle with a fine motor ability. So they'll often oversimplify. So a ladder is a wadder or a yadder, um, and a rabbit is a wabbit, um, sometimes a yabbit. I've seen those as well. And then lastly, the TH, that's our fifth sound. Now this one is just so common in five-year-olds. In fact, you can expect roughly 70% of new entrants to not make a TH at the beginning of a word. It'll usually be an F. Um, sometimes a V, just depending on um, the kind of word it is, but we see this all the time. It often resolves itself within the first two years, so it's just important for parents to know this is very common, and uh, the TH error, and um, there are certainly so many instances I've seen of wonderful teachers who do such a good job of fixing THs, because they fix it as part of the reading because TH is one of the highest um, frequency sounds in reading because of this, that, the, those kinds of words. So easy for um, teachers to fix because you can visualise it really easily too. Your tongue's just between your teeth so you can measure it and see it. So those are the five. Um, your back sounds, your cluster sounds, the long sounds, S and F, your um, L and R sounds, and then your TH sound. So those are the five groups we're talking about. So the most important bit is how do you fix it? And I think it's good to have a framework to approach it. So uh, the framework that, I mean, I've just pulled one, I've actually just pulled one together today for parents just to keep it simple. Um, this isn't necessarily the only framework, but um, the acronym is DIVA, uh, which is easy to remember, D-I-V-A. So the first step is the D, and that's to discriminate because it's important that some of our children who have trouble with their speech don't realise they're making the error. So you can put two words in front of them that rhyme but differ by only the error. So what I mean is you've got car and tar or key and tea and if you say to the child um, point to the one that I say and you say tea and they point to the cup of tea and then you say key and then they aren't sure which one you're saying this is not uncommon. It's it's a significant difficulty, and it means that it's unlikely that the sound's going to correct itself anytime soon because the child doesn't perceive the change. Um, certainly, there are, as a percentage, um, a smaller group of children would would have that trouble. Most children can hear the sound change, but they can't organise it to make the sound correctly. So it's a motor-based issue, meaning they're having trouble coordinating it. The children who can't perceive it, that's much more complicated because it resides more in the um, the linguistic aspect of it. They don't um, hear and distinguish the difference in the first instance. So they're not making a meaning um, uh, differentiation, which is actually really problematic. And those are also the kids that when you say to them, I can't find my T's, they don't look at all confused by that. They just, mm, they're quite accepting of it. 
um, they're also the children that when you repeat back how they've said it and they have said it incorrectly, they don't cr- try to correct you. So the children who they can distinguish it and it is just solely a motor-based issue will usually pull you up on it. Not tease, tease is what they'll say. They can't fix it, but they know that it's wrong. So that discrimination is really critical and really because if you haven't worked out if the child's discriminating yet, your efforts can be undermined because they aren't perceiving it. So you can spend ages trying to fix something. So that's the first thing we're trying to look at. The I in diva is isolate, and what you're trying to do there is teach them to isolate the sound. And what I mean by that is for them to articulate the sound just as an individual sound unit, so that you're basically helping them to organise the motor plan to make the sound. And that can take some time in itself. And then the V is to visualise, and what I mean by that is I will always look to introduce a picture or a gesture to associate with the sound, because I want to externalise for the child the correction to... Um, something that they can see and not just have to hear. And the reason for that is, in behaviour change, we want our children, no matter what behaviour we're trying to change, to own that behaviour change as, as, as early as possible without being dependent on adults prompting them verbally to change. We want them to be engaging in problem solving and taking um, responsibility to think through what do I need to do different to line my behaviour up with what you want? Because that's, that's the instinct, isn't it, of, of parents, of adults, is just simply to um, to correct, you uh, know, uh, yeah. and just keep keep correcting. So you're talking about something much more thorough, like study study the behaviour, maybe write it down and really think it through. Yeah, that's right. You want them to see that. And as five-year-olds, they are capable of that. They're much older now and... So, for example, if I'm working on um, a sound like an F sound, um, often we associate that with the strange, this is going to sound really weird to people, but it seems to work, associate it with a bunny, a picture of a bunny's face. So just a cartoon bunny with big teeth, because the F is your teeth on your lips. So we talk about it being the bunny sound, and you need to look like a bunny, put your teeth on your lip. So you coach them through that. But as you move into treating the sound, you've just got the picture there, that when they make the error, I will wait and see if they look at the picture and correct it for themselves because I want them as early on as possible to begin to think and own that change for themselves instead of just being verbally prompt dependent. And then eventually, of course, you would fade the picture and you would just wait and see if they can remember. That's right, when he waits, it's because I need to change something about my speech. And we're talking about working at just the individual word level at this point. Um, So I would wait and they would say, um, but and I would sit there and look at them, and if they got really stuck, I would tap the picture, and they would remember the bunny sound and say, foot, and try and make the F. And if they got really stuck and weren't doing it, then I would step back in with my verbal prompting and try and show it to them again. But you're always trying to work along that continuum to help children to own the change. So that's the visualising aspect. And then last, it was a bit of a stretch, and I just did it for the means of an acronym. A is ameliorate, which isn't a particularly <laughs> common word, but anyway, it, fit, fit, it works for diva. Um, so the idea is the amelioration or the treatment aspect. When a child is good at discriminating and isolating and visualising, then you can be confident of tackling and establishing a sound in the child's speech sound system. So um, let's jump into the specifics of a sound. Let's look at... Um, say, for example, the Ks and the Gs. So 
again, going back to what we said earlier, we would show them a picture of a key versus a T, making sure that they can hear it. So you say to them, I'm going to say one of these words. I want you to listen and point to the one I say. You're trying to make sure that they do discriminate. If they don't, you need to spend more time there and be modelling that word and, and, and getting them to listen. Can you hear the difference? One of them's a k at my back of my mouth and one of them's t, it's at the front of my mouth. So you're trying to point all of that out and raise their awareness. And then we get into the, so that's the first step. They've become aware or they're demonstrating they already are. And then you're teaching them to isolate the sound. So how we're doing that? We're going to describe that it's a back sound. We're going to ask them to see if they can move their tongue to the back of their mouth. And often I'll get kids to open their mouth about halfway so that I can see what's happening. But also remembering they want to make a T sound, which is your tongue tip going up. And we want to get their tongue further back in their mouth to make a k sound. So if your mouth is open, it's further for your tongue to have to reach for T than it is for the back of it to go up. And then I try to elicit it. Sometimes I just get lucky. I, I, I open my mouth like they are and I go k and I just stretch it a little bit. And you get lucky and they do it. And that's awesome. And then you can move on. But for many of our five-year-olds, the reason that they haven't acquired the sound is they can't do it yet. So usually you get them going t and they do their T sound. So now we need to start using other strategies to elicit it. So the one that I usually use is the hoik, which is a bit heinous to start with. But anyway, you're trying to get them to like be like a pirate. <sighs> that sort of back, sort of almost guttural kind of sound at the back of the mouth. And a lot of children can make that sound. So if they've got their mouth open and they are trying to clear their throat and do a hoik, that's the genesis of contact of the back part of the tongue with the back part of the mouth. And then we begin to shape the behavior from that. So we go from a dragged to a shorter to a and then you're shaping it into the sound. And they um, feel like they're making progress too, which is They do is great. usually, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And look, also as a word of warning, I mean, I want parents, you'll obviously give this a go if this is, if this is relevant, but... It's boring as heck most of the time for kids, so just be aware that it, you feel excited. They're not as excited as you about this. Um, they have been perfectly happy up to this point, many of them, so you will need to structure this time in a way to keep it entertaining. And often what I'll do is show them how many attempts I expect. So I'll put 10 circles on a page, and every time they make an attempt, I'll give a tick. It's really important when you're developing um, a skill in any child, whether it be speech or a maths-related skill or anything. Human beings hate failing, so they are much better um, and will engage better if you reward effort over accuracy. It's really important. So if they are giving it a go in the first instance, you're not doing damage by giving them a tick, even though it was incorrect, because you're trying to get them to buy into the process, and you're praising them, and you're giving them a sense of success and momentum because they're being effortful. And then as slowly, what I've observed over many years of doing this, they become accurate. But I've watched many a session with a parent be derailed because they've said the, uh, the most dangerous word you say when you're trying to help establish a skill in the first 10 seconds, and that is no. Don't say that word. Um, no means you are wrong, you're not getting it right, and it almost carries connotations of I disapprove of what you've just done, and that's not what you're meaning, but children are used to and have been conditioned with no across their life for good reason and many other times, 
and no is usually associated with a lot of frustration. So I always go for effort to begin with. So we're trying to develop that sound. Another one is um, putting the finger on the tip of the tongue. That holds the tongue tip down. So your index finger on the tip of your tongue, opening their mouth and then them trying to imitate you making a k. Um, that can sometimes help. And then there's lots of strategies. I'll just pick one other one so we can move on. Um, getting them to lie on the floor and look at the ceiling. Gravity naturally makes your tongue fall back in your mouth. Mouth open, trying to imitate that sound again. And sometimes children will hit it off because their tongue naturally rests further back and it's closer to the roof of the mouth. So you'll have some success establishing it. Um, the visualising side of it, I will often associate a picture of a boy or a girl coughing um, with it, so pretending that it's the cough sound. And so even though we're making more of a k sound, I'll call it the, the, um, the coughing or the huffing sound or something like that. And then as we treat, so once we've established that sound and we begin to treat it, often we'll pair the sound um, on the end. So it will go, I will give them a vowel, and it's a vowel that's at the back of their mouth, like or or ah, so a back vowel, and then I'll try and get them to transition from that into our sound. It's very hard when kids learn a sound for the first time to then jump straight to words. Most kids can't do it. Um, and you'll get quite frustrated, and they will too. So certainly playing around with um, really simple contexts is helpful. Um, do you have any questions from, I have from so listeners? Many yeah, questions. I'm just thinking we should pause for a second. No, that's been really helpful. Christy said, I'd, I'd love to hear uh, what you think about the optimum age to start dealing with a preschooler with a tongue thrust. Tongue thrust. So what she means by tongue thrust is um, that the resting posture of the tongue is very forward in the mouth, usually between the teeth at rest. And it's often um, also characterised by... Um, the articulation of sounds like T's and D's, L's, N's, S's, Z's are all made with the tongue between the teeth. Um, and it can even affect um, uh, your swallowing of liquid as well. Sometimes there can be spillage in really extreme cases. Tongue thrusts are uh, interesting because actually they're connected to your swallow. And so in a sense it's an immature swallow rather than it being just a, a resting posture or an articulatory error. So we work on how they swallow as well as teaching different sounds and teaching them a better resting posture. Um, in terms of when to work on it, I would often start, because it's quite complex and that there's a lot of talking that happens when I work on tongue thrust, but certainly um, around about four or five years old, I've started with some, but many of my kids who present with tongue thrust, it's about six or seven that I work on that. A uh, few queries about lisps. Lisps. There's actually a podcast we did a while ago on lisps, so I'd recommend people to go back and listen to that. But otherwise, um, lisps are, uh, there's three. Um, there's a frontal lisp that's between your teeth, there, so you can see on an S, and it looks like the tongue's poking out. That one is likely to resolve between the ages of five and about seven. So I often wouldn't start treating that until a child is a little bit older because many times, my own son had one and I just left it because I say this and I thought I should probably find out if it's true. It is true. So he was yeah. a guinea pig? Yeah, I just left him with it. Oh. He also had a stutter as well and I just left that too to see if it would resolve because he had every indication that it would. Um, but yes, absolutely, lisps, you can, um, the frontal lisp, the lateral lisp is where the air leaks out over the sides of the tongue. So you get a, that one doesn't resolve and it needs treatment. 
and that's better to treat when they're about, in my opinion, in my clinical experience, about six or seven. I have tried with younger kids, and there is certainly evidence you can do it with younger kids, but I think personality heavily influences that. Some children are happy at the age of four and a half to sit there and do what you're asking, and many really struggle. So I just find older kids who have developed their literacy to a point that I can also use their reading to support the change. Um, is very effective and the last kind of lisp is palatal and that's way further back right at the back that's very um, mutant and it's very uncommon um, that, that the first two are the more common being the frontal lisp being the most common uh, question from Kat saying um, can you help us please on the letter L my four and a half year old niece can't hear the difference between L and Y yep absolutely so what's happening there is um, we um, given we don't have a lot of time today, I might actually come back to this subject again another time, but let's talk about a skip to L. So L, what's happening there is the tongue is having trouble separating or individuating its movement from the jaw. So the jaw is doing the movement of the tongue. So imagine the tongue resting inside the jaw. When you get the child to say um, light, they'll say yite, because what they're doing is they are moving their jaw to give the tongue the movement and it doesn't work properly. So the jaw will pull away from the top of your your top jaw, your bottom jaw pulls away, the tongue goes with it, it creates the y sound. So the first thing to do would be to just teach her, first of all, discriminate. Can she hear the difference between, um, you'd probably want to find two rhyming pairs and you'll get some weird ones, but um, um, I'm just trying to think of one. Anyway, um, lamb and yam. See, that's not particularly useful, but you've got a rhyming pair there. Can she, is, does she know, um, can she hear that there's a difference? And she might be able to distinguish it because she knows what a lamb is, so by exclusion that might be a yam. But given her age, she might not. But anyway, the point is, can she hear the difference? You could just do the absurd and say, did I say this right? I'm going to climb the yadda and see if she can hear it that way. And then um, you'd have to teach her eye to isolate it. So that's about her tongue needs to come up and touch the gum ridge just behind her top teeth. So sometimes sensitizing that with a bit of ice or touching a straw to it so that she can go up and meet where her the straw is touching to place her tongue there. Just commanding her to place her tongue, tongue up, saying tongue up behind your teeth, usually you'll get tongue out and worming down. So you're going to need to um, be quite hands-on to help her move it up. It's not too early to do this, by the way. Four and a half is a good... I do lots of four and a half year olds with Al. Um, so that would be a good time to intervene. And then you would probably... So once you... Your, your energy would want to go into isolating that movement before you do anything else because it's very frustrating for kids. And there's no point in pairing it with vowels and progressing it to single words if she's not even able to isolate the movement in the first instance. Thank you so much, Christian. More questions coming in. I think there's something that's worth revisiting. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, speech and language therapist Christian Wright. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc., 